Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by my good buddies, Richard. Hello. And Michael. Hello. 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 Howdy. <laughs> Hopefully we're all here. Uh, Gra- Richard... ground, ground control to Major Richard. <laughs> we're having some technical issues right now, so if I... Oh my God, right off the bat. We're, oh, we're, Lordy. We're, starting off, we're starting off on a high note and just kind of going from there. Uh, well, you know, this topic this time around is the Mount Rushmore of Kitsch. Um, and this was chosen by Michael. Michael, why did you choose it? And tell us what Kitsch means if uh, for the unindoctrinated. Gush. Uff. Oof. Okay. Um, well, yes. The um, I chose it um, because of my first choice, which we'll get into after Richard's first choice, but... Um, I think kitsch ultimately falls into um, the idea of kitsch is like low art um, kind of proposed as high art, or maybe it's even the reverse high art as low art. I think there is an aspect of kitsch, which is uh, it's the idea of art embedded in the familiar. It's art that kind of bridges between uh, the familiar and nostalgic it's like all of those com- kind of combined with cute some some kind of like wavy aspect of cuteness i think there is something about some idea of something that it's not trying to be anything more important than it is hmm. although yeah. i think that there are people that will try to propose that it is more important than it is does that make sense it kind of it is this very nebulous gray area of art making art performing art being art that is just like right there right in the middle and you just mm-hmm. yeah it's it, it's like it's almost it's the pornography of art you know it when you see it you look at it and you're like oh that's very kitschy that's kitsch mm-hmm. and like only you can describe what it is and know what it is does that make sense? Yeah, sure. It absolutely does. And I I felt like I knew what it meant. And then the more I read about it, the less excited I was about the definition mm. of it. Um, I I think of that film Music and Lyrics. Uh, Hugh Grant is a pop uh, singer-songwriter. And he talks about the difference between pop music, say, uh, a Beethoven, a Mozart concerto or something, and thinking of how many people have heard the uh smoky robinson you know tracks of my tears or something versus a uh um Klan and knock music or something mm. so mm. more people have heard and made love to and enjoyed this very um um cloying emotional it did uh designed to elicit emotion um not necessarily uh creatively innovative or um breaking new ground but um uh, almost pandering but mm. yet it itself has is art so um yeah it's it's very fascinating and I, for me reading about the definition and how it kind of erupted uh from germany and german artists visual artists discussing it in reaction to what is av- avant-garde so there's if you think of what what is avant-garde breaking new ground and creating new forms and um new for the sake of being new Kitsch is nostalgia for the sake of nostalgia and something that is 
designed to elicit a response and to tell you that it's good or important. Something like Thomas Kincaid versus, yeah, know, like, like Pablo, right, yeah. Pablo Picasso. And um, there's a, and there's a difference, but there's also an intersection with kitsch and camp, mm-hmm. right? Yes, for sure. Like, and I don't know if it has to do necessarily with the irony that's intended within it, or the fact that the performer knowing what is knowing what they're doing is bad necessarily or overinflated or whatever it happens (laughs) to be there there's some there there's definitely an overlap between the two and it's again like michael said it's you know when you see it like i i I know john waters is camp but he's not necessarily kitsch yeah it's funny because um uh when i was first thinking of kitsch um i had heard from somebody i think the german definition is like to smear or something like that. And I thought I had read years ago that the definite that kitsch actually meant shit in German. And it made me think of John Waters. Um, um, what, I forget which divine film she, he, she eats a turd. Or something. Pink, pink uh, flamingos. Pink flamingos. I'm pretty sure that's what and it how is. I do feel like uh, camp doesn't necessarily always have a, element of time involved in it i think about how um the dogs playing poker paintings were received when they were created and now they're enjoyed in a different way with nostalgia so Mm. there is i think some element of nostalgia that that is a component of kitsch whereas uh when batman the series came out and it was all its campy glory i think people at that time even knew that it was uh it was kind of being corny it's, That's interesting. Uh, it, it, would, it would be interesting to think of Batman 66 as camp in its day, but to act out currently in the year 2020 as Batman in that era, would that be kitsch? Yeah. I don't know. I have to, I have to think about that. Like if, um, if there is like a serious take on Batman and yet somehow there's a big um, bright green pow or bam or whiff, would that be splooge (laughs) would that that be camp would that be camp would that be kitsch if that happened in just the like if there was a very serious batman movie which you know there's the batman starring robert pattinson coming out if let's say 72 minutes into this movie if just he punched one person and then and then yeah it just said like sploing and then that was the only reference that would that be kitsch would that be camp i don't know but yeah. i'm excited i'm excited to see yeah yeah okay well why don't we jump in uh michael chose the topic so richard goes first all right so my first choice are the keen paintings ah wonderful the big eye paintings yeah uh, uh done by margaret keen although they were first allegedly done by her husband walter keen as detailed in the uh in the movie Big Eyes, by Tim yeah, Burton. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but you guys, I'm sure you guys have all seen it. It's a, I think it was a very underrated movie when it came out. I really enjoyed it. Tim Tim Burton definitely has this. Um, um, he's got like a a a big kind of um, big idea, low idea, or like big low graph of where he does these big movies, but then does these real low movies, and he kind of he kind of rides the waves of in between, you know. I mean, Tim Burton can oh, be yeah. kitsch on his own. He, he certainly, there's an oh, element he, of kitsch to his stuff. He he, 100% will come up with one of my picks later on. 
awesome. I, I, I would expect nothing less. Um, so if, if you guys are not familiar with the Margaret Keene paintings, they are the uh, usually kids with the big giant saucer-shaped eyes kind of mournfully looking at you. And she started painting those about in the 1950s. Um, her husband, Walter, who was an aspiring artist, decided to start exhibiting them as, as his own. And he was more of a, a kind of a, uh, an overly confident salesperson, so to speak, somebody who could, who could sell, uh, could sell something to anybody. So he was probably the right person to, uh, be the face of the, uh, Keen paintings. Although obviously the fact that he claimed that they were his without telling her is dubious at best. Um, and these paintings at the time, the time they came out, they were very, very divisive. The New York Times art critic said there was the most grotesque um, announcement yet from New York's World Fair when they exhibited it at the 64 World's Fair. Uh, meanwhile, Andy Warhol said that uh, it has to be good. If it was bad, so many people wouldn't like it, which might be the perfect definition of kitsch. Yeah. If, anyone would know Kitch, I would, <laughs> if anyone would know Kitsch, I would say it's Warhol, and I think he kind of nailed it on that. So I, that was literally the first thing I thought about when I thought of Kitsch was somebody's grandmother having a keen painting up on their wall and un unironically thinking that it's sort of the the height of sophistication. Yeah, I think like Warhol. Uh, Keen was part of a movement, perhaps at the beginning of that movement, of this pseudo-expressionist, or <laughs> you know, there there were there were a lot of wide-eyed kid painters, and they would paint you know puppy dogs and um, harlequins and um, all these other subjects that Margaret would paint also, but she, it was part of a, a movement incredible amounts of success these were being sold in department stores a lot, sure. of, a lot of things were being sold in department stores that aren't now but people mass produced these yeah paintings. yeah yeah there, there's a reason why everybody's grandmother has one yeah yeah i think one of the definitions as we examine kitsch in thing other um medium like uh, music or architecture it some of the hallmarks i've seen ascribed to it is that it tries to convince you it does all the things that it's more that it's finer um example does so like in architecture you know you might see columns or <laughs> you might see filigree um uh uh work around the the it might look like tudor it might look like um another uh finer piece of architecture but it's but it's if you go into the cheesecake factory, that's kitschy architecture. It's mm. it's using all this jazz hands and spirit fingers to indicate that it's fine, that's fine design and architecture. So like Creed is the kitsch version of <laughs> um, Stone Temple Pilots. I I don't know like Gosh, <laughs> or the kitsch uh... version of. Man, if you're the kitsch version of Stone Temple Pilots, you've really gone several steps down the ladder. Yeah. Of of yeah so um, yeah so anything that's uh you know when we've seen a film that 
delves into melodrama. That is somewhat kitsch. So yeah. Yeah, what a fun, what a fun example. And that's also something that that's one of those things, those big eyed kids paintings are things that you see and you go, ah, this is something. <laughs> this is like good and bad at the same time. It's so entertaining, but it's so yeah. I'm 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 gonna um, move my uh, first choice. I'm gonna kind of skip what my initial thought was gonna be and move my first choice up since Richard mentioned um, big eyes and um, Tim Burton. Uh, my first choice is now going to be the movie Edward Scissorhands. Oh wow! Okay. Which wow. which the entire movie is this huge just ball of kitsch. It is this proposed 1950s as you said melodrama that's taking place in the current day it is this supposed reality of suburbia that never really existed that people assume existed wrapped up in like this kind of you know christmas time um surreal uh ideal version of a I don't know, fairy tale about this guy that has scissor hands and he's got just as um, the keen paintings has this guy that has these big doughy eyes and even um, Winona Ryder as like the heroine of the movie. She has these huge, big doe eyes that are constantly wide eyed and weeping and soulful, but it just, it exists. This movie exists in this gooey space of like, what did this guy decide to make like right at the immediate height of his powers? Like Tim Burton just came off making um, Batman uh, like a year before. And then all of a sudden he comes out with like this movie about a kind of real life wind up robot boy that comes to life and makes giant topiary. Yeah. Uh, uh, sculptures out of his scissor hands and it's just like i don't know and this movie exists in this weird realm of like i don't know who this movie is for but it's for everybody and it's for nobody mm-hmm. it is this thing that you know um we've talked about danny elfman in the past and it's just this perfect danny elfman scored christmas movie love story kind of beauty and the beast movie set in the 1950s supposedly but it's actually set like literally 1990 and it's so strange and just fills all of it just fills you with all of this weird nostalgia and in-betweenness that you don't know where to put it and then you're 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 done by the end and you're just kind of like weeping because it's just like so sad because this guy's by himself and I don't know. Well, that's a funny choice. I had never thought of that as, as kitsch when it does seem designed to, uh, designed to elicit emotion in every way. Uh, and the design of, um, Tim Burton, you know, originating as an, as a visual artist and animator, uh, m- m- make sure that, uh, he really leans on the design components of that. And then it's essentially taking a B movie genre, um, that he would explore, it's it's if in Ed Wood he explores the emotional life of a boogeyman of the guy who played Dracula 
seems like now he's actually examining the emotional life of a monster in itself. You know, this the, the moments in the uh, James Whale Frankenstein where we feel sympathy for this creature who did not ask to be created, who's come down from this castle and is living among people who don't understand what he is and consider him a freak. It seems like Ed Wood is taking that and blending it with a Disney <laughs> fairy tale. I think I think there's just so much of like just the just the general concept of kitschiness is just like it is so just like subsiding in this realm of like someone from 1978 their idea of what it was like to live in 1956 whether it's real yeah. or not and I think that there is just this I think whether you were living then or not I think there is just you know, I think almost, um, gosh, uh, happy days is so kitschy mm -hmm. to think, to think of like this thing, like just this nostalgia for a time that hmm, maybe you didn't remember it right. Or maybe you only remembered it from like a super like Caucasian perspective, Midwest Caucasian perspective. Like there's some, there's something there that, uh, I think kitsch just sits in and marinates in and i think you just can't get out of i richard mentioned um uh god uh waters earlier and like all of his movies just sit in this 1950s 1960s you know baltimore uh lifestyle yeah. that i oh, you yeah. know may maybe it's like very fringy but mm -hmm. it's it's very much within that yeah. Oh, that's a fun choice. That's a fun choice. It does seem like uh, he is mishmashing all these B-movie genres together to come up. It's even almost like uh, a beach party movie or pillow talk or something. <laughs> he puts in there. So. That's fun. Uh, Richard, what's your second choice? All right. So my second choice uh, is The Lava Lamp. Oh, oh fun. Wonderful choice, Richard. And Yeah. Yeah, and I, I say this as someone whose wife uh, just bought my daughter a lava lamp for her nice. new bedroom since we nice. moved into a new place. She has her own bedroom and literally had no idea how to uh, how to decorate it. And my wife said, you know, I had a lava lamp when I was your age. You should probably <laughs> have one, too. <laughs> and I just love this idea that the lava lamp went from something that was this counter cultural sort of countercultural symbol, right? There was something that the hippies had and it sort of somehow evolved into this symbol of you know, bourgeoisie sort of camp mm. for lack of a better term. And yeah. I, just, I just love that idea that, that something can go from being not kitsch to kitsch and now it's it's just something that, that I think for a while there was kind of the seventies. Uh, there's the, the kind of the seventies revival in the nineties, and so the, the lava lamps in the college dorms are a big part of that. And, but that all went away. But somehow I don't think the lava lamps ever did, and I can't quite put my finger on exactly why. But there's something about the lava lamp that has managed to extend beyond particular retro coolness. Hmm. 
is it that it like it heats up to 182 degrees and like you touch it and like your your skin <laughs> melts like um what's his name in like Raiders of Lost Ark? Yeah, tote. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> thank you. The, yeah, there's I, a good. There's a good. Do you feel like the lava lamp has achieved the uh, decor equivalent of being the Ramones T-shirt or something that the <laughs> kid it wears? A, but they they're both available in any hot topic. So from that standpoint, yes, I think it's you're dead yeah. accurate on that. Yeah, uh, but no, I, I see where you're coming from. Where somebody it's something it's, some, it's a status symbol now that people have, even though they aren't familiar with the uh, source material. And would be interested to know what its actual um, 1963, yeah, 1963 by British entrepreneur Edward Craven Walker. That's interesting, um, but definitely. What a name, by the way. What a name, yeah. Edward Craven Walker. <laughs> that sounds like a Harry Potter thing that you'd be looking out for. <laughs> uh, I also, I, I believe that the original Mathmos Astro lava lamp uh, was something. Was well, the first lamp made to look at while you were smoking up, right? It's like the first yeah. lighting that was made to just zone sure. out to when you're hitting the ball. Maybe not. Oh, yeah. Um, that, that's something. No, that's something that it was, I think, is universal to this day. Yeah. It, it is the first version of the um, whenever you're in uh, your high school um physics class and they put on a um, a movie on the tv and it suddenly uh the teacher is not paying attention and the screen goes to black and there's just that ball bouncing from corner to corner it just hits the side yeah down right. it's, <laughs> it gets to the point where it's on like a uh a screensaver and you just you're sitting there you're sitting there just focus on it's at some point it's gonna 100 get right into that corner Oh, yeah, there's a very funny yeah. office. <laughs> yeah, there's a very funny office cold open where they're all watching that thing happen, <laughs> and it eventually happens. And Michael thinks because they're giving like a he's giving like a speech, and Michael assumes that they're excited because of his speech. They're yeah, cheering for that because it hit the corner oh. perfectly. Oh, how funny! <laughs> That's funny. Um, I love they show a photo of the. Lava Lamp Factory at 1650 Irving Park Road in Chicago. Can you imagine getting the job at the Lava Lamp Factory thinking, <laughs> well, I'm going to get a mortgage and buy a house and my kids <laughs> into private school. This, this, this thing's going to last forever. Yeah. I love it. So this, the Lava Lamp also uh, reminds me of a, a holiday decor item, the little bubbling Christmas lights. Did you ever see those things? They seem like something that... Um, uh, no, a bit of nostalgia, but mm. those were old fashioned when I started buying them in like the eighties, but it's like meant to kind of imitate an actual, um, taper candle, uh, as people actually used to put on their very brittle trees, <laughs> these little, little candles and things like that. But it's a little bubbling kind of light that would, that was, uh, reacting to heat. But, um, I don't know if, uh, any, there are any holiday elements in there, but speaking of Christmas, <laughs> Yeah, my wife, let's, get, my wife. let's get this pl- get this plug in, bro. Um, Kitsch is spelled K-I-T-S-C-H, and my wife is the proprietor of an Etsy store called Kitschmas Wonderland, in which she sells these beautiful uh, 
art pieces, I would call them, but they are uh, something that you look at and you feel like you're traveling back in time because they are made of uh, glass Christmas ornaments, and they are wreaths made of glass Christmas ornaments, uh, most of them retro vintage glass ornaments, and they are just um, enchanting, I would say. And if you go to uh, Etsy and search Kitchmas Wonderland, um, or I think if you type in kitchmaswonderland.com, you're going to find her site. And uh, I would say go check those out. Uh, um, she is very um, much a retro vintage kind of gal. She rocks like the Betty Page bangs. And uh, she puts a lot of love into each one of these things. But for me, Christmas itself is a kind of a nexus of kitsch. Um, one of the, I think, hallmarks, one of the components of kitsch is mass production and um, affordability. <laughs> Some of yeah. the, the things don't aren't able to reach a huge audience unless they're something that uh, uh, has a price point that is attainable. So there is so much of Christmas that are not just the, not necessarily the trappings of Christianity or even paganism, but just kind of d design and decor and overblown, you know, attempts at trying to get people to buy stuff related to the holiday. Jeff, how many um, how many Christmas trees do you have up in your house right now on November twenty second? Uh, I would say October twenty second. We had two up. There you um, go. So I think we Good have job. three now. Okay. <laughs> and the Full front of our house has lights all over it. So. Good job, sir. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Michael. Uh, My second choice. You your second choice. This was the uh, before I moved up um, Edward Scissorhands. This was the reason why I thought of this topic. Is um, the other night, as Emily and I are wont to do, we were watching just some music videos, and um, the music video for the B fifty two song "Rock Lobster." Oh wow! Man, yeah. this is a super underrated banger of a song. Just so super kitschy. You think that it is just a song about um, being underwater and rocking out. <laughs> and it, it is. It, it literally is. It's a song about a rocking lobster. But you get you get through the song, and two and a half minutes in, you think, okay, this song is going to fade away. And it's like two minutes, 30 seconds in, and then it starts to pick up again. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what is what is this song turning into? Yeah. And you're just so it just builds and it's so exciting and it turns into like, you know, Kate Pearson and Cindy Wilson and Fred Schneider just doing like weird faux underwater like animal sounds. Yeah. And it's just wild. Like the B fifty suits are probably, you know, most well known for Love Shack, which is a wonderful song entirely maybe one of the best songs you could ever play at your wedding that just gets people moving but rock lobster is a song that is so ridiculous it just exists in this weird nebulous point that i think all of kitsch does that harkens back to something from the 50s that pushes things forward as kind of like art rock does and it's just so incredible. And it like, like I said, it has like this weird, like 
you think things are winding down, then it builds back up, and you're just like taken into something else that uh, I, I don't know that they've ever done on any of their other songs. Oh yeah, and I just I just love it. I just I just love the song. I love. I personally love like Fred Schneider, his vocals, and I personally love that you could go to any karaoke bar when you're allowed to go to karaoke and sing any song in the style of Fred Schneider. <laughs> yes. And you are going to kill the song. All you need to do is get a little nasally and you're fine. You can sing just whatever your favorite song is. Just sing it like you were on the B-52s and you are going to just kill it because yeah. you don't need to be able to sing. And he doesn't, he doesn't really, really know how to sing, but the song is just so delightful and exists in like, what are they singing about? A lobster? They're singing about mm-hmm. narwhals? They're singing about cat? What? What is yeah. this? Who cares? I, it's just I, so great. I think if the B-52s were kind of the 50s filtered through the thrift store chic of Athens mm-hmm. in the 80s, this was a beach party as uh, filtered through uh, LSD. Or, or something. So, this all this beach party imagery of you know, of kids you know having fun, and then this horror movie, uh, um, you know, this giant B movie horror movie where lobster <laughs> coming and attacking them. That's so cool. Uh, did you? I was obviously this delving into Wikipedia here, but it says uh, in the spring of 1980, John Lennon, whose post Beatles music career had been on hiatus for five years while he helped raise his son, was prompted to record again after hearing Rock Lobster. Oh my according, God, I love that. According to Lennon, Give me it all of sounds that. just like Ono's music. So I said to myself, <laughs> it's time to get out the old axe and wake the wife up. Um, oh, is then, that is that the part where like Kate Pearson's doing like, here comes a man array. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, that sounds like that sounds like Yoko. I got yeah, it. That's exactly it. I that liked that. I liked that. I liked that was Paul McCartney doing, um, <laughs> doing John, Lennon. John, John Lennon. But whatever, you know. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's a fun one. Uh, so uh, I got. This... I got. I got to say. Well, before you go to the halftime, yeah. Um, we were alarmed to learn that the song "Good Stuff" came out in 1992. Oh boy, man, that is a terrible song and a terrible video and we were like oh this is clearly 1997 and then we watched it and it was like 92 holy shit what the fuck are these guys doing now give me some uh, of that good stuff yeah no, yeah it's a terrible song You're 92 right. 92 uh, what's going on there's a great slate podcast about the b-52s and actually drawing strong uh comparisons to their career to that of rem the unlikely um, pop music success mm. of a college rock band uh, from from Athens. Yeah, from Athens. So, uh, um, so yeah, and, and um, having survived the death of their one of their songwriters and guitarist, and then I think um, yeah, so Ricky Wilson was Kate's Cynthia's brother, Cindy Wilson's brother, and he unfortunately passed uh, away, and then. So the drummer learns how to play guitar and trying to learn how to play guitar like somebody who doesn't know how to play guitar because <laughs> there's there's no good guitar on a B-52's album. It's just like some punk-ass chord that a guy knows and strumming it over and over in a trial kind of way, just like 
Fred Schneider doesn't actually know how to sing. He knows how to shout. <laughs> so, uh, but they put it all together in a way that was just inimitable. So that's so cool. Yeah, there's, I think also too, just to kind of round it out back to my kind of my thesis about all of this is that like they just kind of exist in like this 1980s version of what 1955 feels like with like, you know, uh, women wearing, wearing literal, uh, you know, beehive haircuts and um, Mondrian dresses and things that are just like, there's an image of what their idea of the 50s is without it actually being the 50s. It's just like, it's all concept. Mm-hmm. It's all, yeah. It's all kids. Yeah, that's, that's, that's super fun. Uh, I think of it as, you know, they, they're, they don't have all the ugly stuff in the 50s, they're just the fun stuff. Yeah. Cool. So we are at our halftime and um, uh, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, uh, we are thankful for you, the listener. And we'd be thankful if you um, did like the uh, first uh, pilgrims and Native Americans to share, share the bounty of the Mount Rushmore podcast with your family, with your friends. Um, I hope that does not become a huge super spreader event like the initial Thanksgiving or the, even the idea of it was or the 2020 thanksgiving <laughs> and how how appropriate is it that the native americans are getting their revenge you know yeah. uh, 250 <laughs> plus years later where they're just like oh now now you will all die yeah you kill us with your european diseases mm-hmm. uh, um and you'll get one from china maybe who knows who cares um so yeah uh, do us a solid and uh share the gift of the Rushmore podcast Maybe that's actually uh, a gift you give for the holidays as well. So uh, that would be super cool. And then uh, if you would give us the gift of ratings and, and reviews, type some words into the review. Uh, Michael or Richard, when's the last time you looked at reviews on this? Have you in a while? It's been a while. It's been, it's been, a, a, while. It's been a minute. Yeah. I'd be interested to see what people are saying. Uh, uh, my, like my, my review for us is like, listen to us. <laughs> yours is the best Jeff yours is yes yours is fantastic please guys just go look up Jeff's if you do nothing else look up Jeff's review of the podcast I forgot what it was it you, was you, you you say this is not a Mexican restaurant a Tex-Mex restaurant it's even yeah. more specific yes <laughs> I love uh, I love that helpful. Richard and I have your review of our podcast memorized <laughs> the point it's so pathetic review my review uh, uh, so, also, just talk to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We'd love to hear what you uh, think would be a good topic. In we've got most of our 2021 slate wide open, I would say, um, phenomenally wide open. I, I will say that December, uh, the podcast for December um, 10th, I'm excited to say is a, uh, and guys, I told you about this months ago, is a interview with the uh, purveyor of the Weird Disney pod, or sorry, sorry, Weird Christmas podcast, Weird Christmas podcast. So um, those people who are Christmas fans or fans of weirdness and will love to be entertained by the intersection of both. Um, and if you are a fan of Weird Christmas, you should check out the Kitchmas yeah. uh, shop on Etsy. Yeah, <laughs> Kitchmas well Wonderland. Yeah, uh, weird, weirdly beautiful. Some of these uh, probably discarded 
uh, ornaments that are uh, from the 50s and 40s and 60s as they are uh, put into a wreath, uh, all lovingly hot glued together by my wife, Jennifer. So let's get back at it. So uh, it is Richard's third. All right. So my third choice are 1970s variety shows. Oh, I love it. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. And, and this is where the kind of intersection of camp and kitsch kind of comes in. And I'm not quite sure where they fall in, but I'm really not trying to get, I'm not trying to think about it too much. And very specifically, I'm thinking about Sonny and Cher. And very specifically, oh, yeah. I'm thinking about Cher. I think <laughs> Cher is, I think a 70s variety show may be camp. And I'm, I'm kind of revising this on the fly. But I think what I'm going down to is my actual pick is 1970s Sonny and Cher show Cher. Yeah. As Kitch. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you, they used to show the episodes on Nick and Knight back in the 90s, and I would watch it with my brother. And we would be rolling for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, I do remember her doing a Christmas melody, speaking of Christmas, a Christmas melody. Mm-hmm. And it included the song, All, Oh Holy Night. And it's just picture Cher in this Bob Oh Mac- Holy Night. Yeah. Oh, oh Holy Night. <laughs> the stars are shining brightly. <laughs> and we're wearing this like over the top Bob Mackie dress. Which is one of the reasons why I wanted to choose just share as a concept, as kitsch, um, because she was known for the Bob Mackie dresses, and the yeah. Bob Mackie dresses are ultimate kitsch. They are like evening wear Hawaiian shirts, is essentially what they are. Because <laughs> you look at them now and you think, was that really considered to be attractive? And I don't know that that was, but it was considered to be opulent and decadent and over the top mm-hmm. which i think is a key element of kitsch yeah um and you know where else would you be able to see El- or uh, david bowie and uh and share doing a medley of their favorite of, of of their favorite david bowie songs yeah and it's just bonkers the whole thing oh, so I, I i love 70s variety show crap in general uh, jeff i remember one time Several years ago, you posted on YouTube a video of Burt Parks doing a... Uh, Somebody's knocking at the door. <laughs> yes, doing, doing Let Him In by Paul McCartney and Wings yeah. Yeah. at like a Miss America pageant. And yeah. it is so beautiful. Yeah. Um, but the Sunny and Cher show specifically is the one that I, that, that I, I focused in on as, as being just so the perfect camp kitsch combination. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Uh, what was, I think, fascinating to me, as I would learn later, is there were components of Sonny and Cher that were borrowing from uh, vaudeville. They were essentially a dumb Dora uh, kind of, uh, they were, could have been Burns and Allen in that yeah. um, it was a couple doing these uh, just kind of time-worn jokes um, and kind of digging at each other and and then going into medleys and you know vaudeville inspired things where like you said in in case of Cher just the architecture of her physique and uh, was enough for a designer to want to put some clothes on this 
you know, six foot tall, um, Italian Armenian <laughs> right. hybrid model. And, and then the disparity between the two were right out of uh, Laurel and Hardy and, and even even Sonny's limited vocal range, like Sonny was not a singer. Yeah, he was I, like he was basically just a, a studio rat. Yeah, who hung around uh, Phil Spector. Yeah, he was to soak Phil's, up. Yeah, Phil Spector's yeah. right hand man basically yeah. just soaked up enough knowledge to yeah. be able to recreate a Phil Spector IF sound on something like the beat goes on, which he just mm-hmm. sort of rudimentarily rudimentarily hammered out on his piano one day kind of just one note at a time do, yeah. do, 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 do. and that's yeah. who he was i mean he wasn't a musician he wasn't a singer but yet somehow he managed to ingratiate himself into enough musical people to be mm-hmm. able to have this career yeah and i should i should point out by the way that that i am very specifically what the one that people remember that was on Nick at Night was the Sunny and Cher comedy hour. The actual Sunny and Cher show was the one after they got divorced. Mm-hmm. And that's a sad place to be. There's nothing yeah. kitsch about that. It's just sad. <laughs> yeah, I think they had three or four different things. Sunny and Cher, Cher, and then there was a Sunny back. There was a Sunny comedy review. Was it really? Yeah, because if 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 we've learned nothing else, it's like Sunny without sharing top notch. Yeah. The, uh, I think I posted a thing on Facebook of, um, share doing a French schoolroom sketch with Don Knotts, like these two <laughs> in one frame together. <laughs> so, so corny, uh, the boy, the stellar writing cast. Uh, I mean, I think, um, Albert Brooks, Al Brooks, yeah. Bob, Bob Einstein, um, Steve Martin, I know, I think uh, Rob Reiner was a writer on one of those shows. I know those guys all worked on Smothers Brothers, but I think they were also on that show and on the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. But, you know, think if now you're drilling down into, you're focusing on Sonny and Cher, but, uh, oh my God, the Tom, I've got videos of the Dean Martin uh, Variety Hour, Tom Jones, um, Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour, and... Uh, just so fabulously bizarre, too. Yeah, and, 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 the, and the deeper you go into the rabbit hole, the, the weirder they get. Yeah. Like, you start getting into Susan Anton type stuff, and it's yeah. like, whoa, what's happening here? Yeah. Um, wow, that's a fun pick. Um, that is a fun pick. What's also funny is just how it's it's kind of encapsulating, like, in that kitsch looks at high art or kitsch looks at finer um, examples of whatever medium that it's in. There were moments that were trying to be very sublime. So within one hour, you would have a message song, you know, where it's, it's Sonny and Cher singing with Stevie Wonder about how, you know, racial inequality is unfair. (laughs) Uh, Have you, Jeff, have you seen any of the episodes of the of Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore variety show from the seventies? No, the one with Letterman was with Letterman one? and Michael Keaton. Oh wow, no, I. And they're doing there's there's a clip that uh, Keaton was on Letterman, and they showed a clip of it, and it's wow. the two of them uh, as part of a whole cast doing like a a song and dance number. Wow, it's unbelievable, and I think the the seventies variety show quite 
quite uh, fittingly was killed in 1980 by Pink Lady and Jeff. Yeah. It's like <laughs> as soon as this, the minute the 1970s were over, this thing came along and it was just like, nope, we're done yeah. with that now. We're done. Moving on to Bob Hope, you can continue to do your specials until the 80s. You're grandfathered in, but everybody else, you're done. Yeah. Yeah, you know, now the closest thing I think is uh, America's Got Talent, where you'll see a plate spinner, a, a mime, a singer, yeah, some dancers. Yeah. You know, that's that's about impression impressionist. But it's not about the the force of the personality of a host necessarily, yeah. or the, of the 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 star of the show. Yeah, um, those of you who are fans of I don't know sci-fi, Star Wars. And may be familiar with the like the Star Wars holiday special, or I found a copy of it somewhere. Half the reason your jaw is dropping is because um, the format is something that's unfamiliar to people today. The other half is it's horrible. It's 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 horrible. <laughs> but it, the format yeah. of, of the, of the um, televised variety show, uh, comedy, music, dance, maybe some in this case, some art or some animation or something like that um, was was totally applied to this thing. It should never have been applied to a science fiction film. So, wow. Yeah. Okay, uh, Michael, what do you got for your third choice? Uh, God, hard to follow that up, but I'm, I'm going to go really broad on this one, and it is just the color pink. And Whoa. I don't know if there is anything that you can think of that is more just kitsch and more, uh, I don't know, falls into the idea of it's it has no particular feeling other than a kind of a familiar sense of remembrance than the color pink. It doesn't matter. Uh, like the pink flamingo, uh, Angeline's Corvette, if you're here in Los Angeles, bubblegum. Um, silly putty the pink panther as a cartoon character like it is this color that just cannot be taken seriously in any way it doesn't matter it's not red it's not super passionate and hot it's not like anything else just the color pink in general is just so uh kitsch i don't know what it is about this very specific color it's so weird and yeah. it's so just like where do you put it what do you what do you color pink other than like weird animals and things you want to just pop in like princess dresses and like mm -hmm. i don't know what but like i when i was thinking of kitsch i just thought of like god this color is just there and it's not like there is it's not like there it has like a like a, a, a color that is like on the opposite side of it. Like you can't just say like, oh, well, what's the opposite of like pink, like light blue? I mm -hmm. guess so. Not really. Yeah. Like, like no other shade of another particular color because I guess, you know, pink kind of falls into that red spectrum. But like no other particular color really stands out and is so specific as like just pink. Mm -hmm. It's just pink is just so – and maybe I'm thinking of a – you know, kind of like that very um, kind of like highlighter bubblegum. I don't know what pink, but just like there's there's something about it that's just like really weird. 
but the like closest we have the closest we have is Miami Marlins teal. That's the closest you have to uh, the flip side of pink. I guess so, but like yeah, maybe. But like um, I don't know. I was just thinking about it. Could have been that I was thinking of um, um, our in our neighborhood. Uh, is the ex home of a songwriter named Allie Willis. And she wrote, um, she was like a, one of the co-writers of like earth, wind and fire September. And she wrote just oh, a, the lyricist. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fun. She, um, she recently passed away. I think in this last year, I don't think of COVID reasons just cause, uh, uh, she was getting up there, but she's just like, I'd walk by her house and it was just like this testament to, this, you know, kind of 1957's uh, idea of, I don't know what, pink. Everything was pink. She had like this, <laughs> she had a pink car parked in front outside of her pink house and had pink flamingo um, lawn ornaments in front and everything about it was just so kitsch and pink and flamingo-y. And I don't know, there's just something about that color that was just so very... I don't know. You have to really love that color to just have it infused in your lifestyle. Yeah. It's a, it is definitely a lifestyle color. Yeah. You would have to be Jack, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis or somebody to pull it off um, and still kind of have gravitas that I feel like even yellow could, can do business like a Kodak <laughs> box or something like that. Right. Even yellow can pull it off and it could be like an emergency color. It could caution. Take me seriously. There's danger. <laughs> There's no such thing as a power pink. Yeah. Basically. Do you think that's an unfortunate offshoot of gender association? Like, do you think mm. it's something that has to do with that? I, I would I would hate to think that. Uh, that's, fasc- that's fascinating. Um, I don't know. Maybe, it, maybe you know, I, I still think of like a pink flamingo and maybe it's like the least serious bird that has ever taken you look at that bird and you're just like all right you get a lot of shrimp that's why you're pink <laughs> like, no, that's fun. no 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 one takes a flamingo seriously i don't know maybe maybe there is probably some like gendered bias in there but um <laughs> i don't know i why do we why are so many things that are just like you know like just Bubblegum. Why is bubblegum pink? Mm-hmm. Mm, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's a funny choice. Okay, Manfredi. All right. So my last choice, I'm going with the king of space age pop. Oh, the Busby oh. Berkeley of cocktail music. <laughs> Juan Garcia Esquivel, otherwise known as Esquivel, with an exclamation point at the end. Um, if there's anyone who is associated with kind of the late 50s, early 60s kind of space age pop movement, it's Esquivel. And Esquivel might have been one of my earliest uh, entry points into the idea of kitsch as entertainment. I remember I was probably 14 or 15, 13, 14, whenever the first Esquivel re-releases started to become like a thing like where you would go to Tower Records and they would be highlighting it. And I bought the album Space Age Bachelor Pad Music, which is, I think, a comic, greatest hits sort of thing. And 
I just fell in love with it, like unironically. Just thought it was the greatest type type greatest music I had heard in a long time because it was so it was just over the top and fantastic. And you know, if you guys haven't aren't familiar with Esquivel's music, he is somebody who included a lot of exotic percussion, a lot of vocals that would end with just they wouldn't have words that would be just zap pow yeah. bang <laughs> kind of the batman 66 of music yeah if you will um and someone who who led a a, a very space age bachelor pad type of lifestyle too um definitely uh partied hard uh was a hit with the ladies um and uh was very fortunate to have his late career uh, renaissance because he had, was pretty much broke at that point because he had uh, drank and screwed his way out of all of his money. Um, but I just, like I said, I, it, you can, I, I have Esquivel albums now. And if there's like a, some sort of like gathering with friends, I will put it on. And it just feels like the right music to have on with friends, mm-hmm. especially if I'm having a key party. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think like you stated, there are some components that of some we're drawn to some of these things because they're kitschy at first, and then the irony goes away, and we're just digging it. And uh, doesn't yeah, does it, the kitsch kind of is a component of it, but you're you're tapping your toe, you know. Yeah, I think that's where kitchen camp kind of diverged to some extent. Mm-hmm. I think there's an element of things that are kitschy that you can still appreciate on that face value. Yeah. I think camp almost requires a form of irony to be able to appreciate it. And just, you know, I mean, he was a great composer or arranger, I should say, probably more than anything else. The way he kind of played with the idea of stereo music when no one else was really experimenting with it, with stuff coming in from both, you know, both sides of the, of the speakers Mm -hmm. You know, at one point he recorded two bands doing the same track at the same time from studios a block away. And one was going to the left speaker, one was going into what would be the right speaker. And he literally was in, in the middle in a recording studio, kind of directing them and telling them what to do. Wow. Just very, very innovative sort of stuff. Um, I don't know if you, if you get to, I don't know if you get to Pet Sounds without i mean yeah. you listen to there's like one uh instrumental track on pet sounds and i'm totally blanking on the name of it but it is very Esquivel uh and then kind of exotic music mm-hmm. uh uh oriented i'm gonna look this up now because it's gonna drive me bonkers <laughs> but um yeah i just i can listen to an Esquivel album from start to finish and it, it's not from an ironic sort of reason you know, it, it's just, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it goes beyond just kind of novel makeout music. And, and it falls short of being the um, William Carlos, like explorations in synthesizer or something that has just a kind of a fully exploratory. I made this crazy record just uh, so I could explore the limits of, of recording technology at the time so right yeah it's a lot of fun and i i think of a, a with great sympathy for uh 
people from uh, of international origin, musical immigrants who who uh, found plenty of opportunity in uh, the popular uh, music industry in the United States, but were always a novelty because of this uh, exotic label. So right. uh, he could he could open for Sinatra, he could do music for a Western or something like that, but he could never not be um, that guy from Mexico who who was uh, creating music here. Yeah. Whereas Let's like go. A Martin Denny, good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very, very, very similar to ourselves. Yeah. Let's go away for a while. That's the name of the uh, Beach Boys oh. song I was thinking of, just to close that loop. Okay. But yeah, I mean, and I always wonder if the fact that he was from Mexico had any sort of bearing on 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 not being moored to sort of conventional American ideas of what pop music should be. Mm-hmm. I just I just wonder if there's some if there is some connection there. Yeah. Groovy. Okay, uh, Winfield, your final choice. Uh, my last choice is the drink. The Shirley Temple. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, there is an aspect of the Shirley Temple, which, you know, it is this thing that kind of bridges the gap between being a kid thinking that you're getting something unique and special as like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to have a special drink made for me. And it's a called a Shirley Temple. And like it's your first like real like. Um, dalliance into something quasi-adult, although it's like, you know, it's ginger ale and grenadine, and it's the least adult thing you can possibly be. But there's something just so kitschy about, like, just this so simple, syrupy, sugary drink named after, you know, a 1920s kid starlet that uh, is so just saccharine and sweet and ironic and, like, I just lo- I love the idea of like an adult ordering something like this. I love the idea of just like there's someone out there that's just like that has never never lost their love of something so yeah. uh, sweet and delicious, <laughs> and they're just like walking up to a bar and just like uh you know oh well, yeah okay it's just having a you know a gin and tonic and a uh, uh what beer do you have on tap and uh, I'll have a <laughs> I'll have a Shirley Temple. Make it make it a double. <laughs> like I don't know. Like there's something. Like I remember, like uh, as a as a kid getting a Shirley Temple, feeling like, wow, this is really cool. It's like, yeah, it's cherry juice dripped on top of a yeah, uh, Canada Dry. All right, kid, <laughs> you're cool. Yeah, it's the gateway to a Tom Collins. So if you're really- <laughs> heavier stuff you know do there's you, go ahead do you remember the or were you i don't know if you were a kids in the hall fan but there was the girl drink drunk uh sketch it was like yes. a film noir oh yeah as as, as uh dave foley is in the closet of his yeah. office with a blender yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah he is just uh he's just hooked to anything that has a pineapple slice wedge in it or <laughs> Blue or pink, <laughs> that is funny. Yeah, you know, the may- syrupy. Can you imagine? You you grow old, but you never break free. <laughs> There's um I, th- that it's interesting to think of like just that oh, the entire idea of like um uh, I didn't think of that until 
you mentioned the word pineapple, but just like, you know, tiki bar rum based cocktails that are, have, you know, kind of became prevalent in probably the late fifties, early sixties, just the idea of like your entire bar and drink culture is based on the imperialism of America. Yeah. And just like absorbing some other, some <laughs> this faux culture that you're bringing in, just like, and you're like, oh, now, now this is American, all this tiki shit. This is now America, an extension of America. <laughs> uh, is he an alcoholic? No, he's a di- diabetic from. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know. There's, but there's something about just the Shirley Temple. There's just so uh, saccharine. And I love the idea too that apparently, um, Shirley Temple herself just like hated it. Oh, really? And hated the, and hated the idea of it. Just this thing. It's just like, ah, God, fuck you guys. <laughs> well, the thing about it, she was like a UN, you know, ambassador and all these, all this stuff in her later life. Yeah. And she's known for this like cloying, non alcoholic drink that you can serve a kid. Yeah. That's got to be a pain <laughs> in the ass. I would love to go to a party with. That's a theme party where everybody's named after a drink. <laughs> you know? mm. um, God. Tom Collins is like, uh, I'm trying to think of a. Uh, God, what there's. Harvey, Harvey, Harvey Wallbanger. Wallbanger. <laughs> yeah. What's the, uh, what's the, um, Richard, I'm, I'm blanking on this right now. What's the golfer that has a. Ta- uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's lemonade. I, and I, want, I want to call it a Tom an Arnold. Arnold that's, an Arnold thank Palmer? you. Arnold Palmer. The Tom Arnold is a horrible drink. It's it's just a sloppy Joe that's been put through a blender. The Tom Tom Arnold as a drink is whatever is left in the tray after all the other other, other booze is spilled into it. What do you want? Uh, Get me the Tom Arnold. What's that? Levens. (laughs) (laughs) All right, gents. So let's uh, score it up. Um, uh, Just because it made me... uh, uh, open my eyes to the things that uh, were kitsch that happened in my lifetime. Um, Edward Scissorhands and Rock Lobster. I think those were a lot of fun. And uh, um, super uh, had a lot of fun with um, obviously the Lava Lamp and 70s Variety Show. So I'll go with those. Yeah. So thank Great you, gentlemen. Choices. Those were fun. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to those within earshot of this podcast listening on this day. Um, uh, Thursday, the fourth Thursday. Yeah, I um, hope you're enjoying this not with your family. Yeah, maybe your immediate family, but other than that, please, if 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 you see an uncle at your table, get up and walk away. <laughs> That's a good any day, any yeah any, any day tip. Uh, and we are thankful for you, and um, you're awesome. So, this has been the Mount Rushmore of Kitsch. I'm always I'm Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. We did it. We did it. That was a good episode, you guys. It was a lot of fun. That was one of the better yeah. episodes we've done in a while. Good yeah. job. That was hella good fun. Talk. Good talk, guys. All right, good bros. We'll, All right, uh, we'll do it again next week. We'll do it again next week. Okay, congrats on your puppy. Thank you. <laughs>